you would, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. We'll be looking at Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10 today. <clears throat> One of Shakespeare's most popular plays, Macbeth, tells the story of a man and a wife who murder a king so that they can gain power. During the murder of the king, Lady Macbeth has her hands covered in blood. And although she and her husband get away with the murder, blaming it on some servants, a guilty Lady Macbeth sees that incriminating blood every single time she looks at her hands. She washes her hands over and over and over again, but she never feels that she can get the stains out. She continues to smell the blood and says that all the perfumes in Arabia would not be enough to get rid of that stench. Her guilt is so intense that by the end of the play, Lady Macbeth commits suicide, her guilt driving her to complete and utter despair. Now, not all people deal with guilt the way Lady Macbeth did. Some people try to justify the bad things that they do, pushing away their guilt by convincing themselves that they were in the right to do that evil. Other people try to ignore their guilt by distracting themselves or purposely choosing not to think about their guilt. But however people deal with guilt, one thing is clear. Everyone on earth will have to find some way to respond to guilt because everyone on earth has sinned. Not everyone has murdered a king like Lady Macbeth, but all of us have had thoughts and words and actions that are wrong, that are evil. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned. And since all of us have sinned, have done evil things, then all of us stand guilty before the Creator God. And how you respond to that guilt will not only determine the, the way your entire life will play out, but will also determine your eternal destiny. The Bible has a lot to say about guilt. But the most important thing it says is that all of our guilt can be forgiven. If we turn to Jesus as our only Savior and Lord, our guilt can be removed. If we trust in the one who died to take our guilt, who died to receive the punishment for our sins, and who rose from the dead to give us life. But not everyone comes to Jesus with their guilt. And today we're going to examine some guilty people who tried to deal with their guilt on their own. And as we study this passage, we will see the danger we all face when we don't take our guilt to Jesus. So please look with me at Matthew 27, verses one 
through 10. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Lord God, we thank you for allowing us the opportunity and the privilege to once again dive into your word, a word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, a word that still changes us today, thousands of years after it was written. We thank you so much, God, that you have chosen in your grace and kindness to speak to us. And I ask that you would help us today to be focused on what you are saying to us and that we would be transformed by it and that we would be led to look to Jesus, that we would be led to not try to deal with our guilt on our own. Thank you for Christ's love for us, and in his name we pray. Amen. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, abandoned by his disciples, arrested by Jewish authorities, taken to a trial and condemned to die by the Jewish high council, beaten and mocked by that council and denied by Peter. A lot of bad things have occurred to Jesus and he has endured a lot of pain and is headed towards more. But in the middle of that description of what Jesus went through, today we're going to see a passage that that focuses our attention on some extremely guilty people and how they responded to their guilt. But as we saw last week when we examined Peter, although this passage may, may focus more on Judas and the Jewish leaders, it is meant to teach us about Jesus And we're going to see that very clearly today. If you want to better follow along in our sermon today, there's an outline of our sermon right on the back of your bulletin. And we're going to start by looking at guilt earned by leaders. Guilt earned by leaders. Matthew 27, the first two verses say, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Jesus had already stood trial before the Sanhedrin the night before. 
And here we see the Sanhedrin meeting again in the morning as it was gathering of, a gathering of all the chief priests and the elders of the people. The Sanhedrin was the, the highest Jewish council. It was the top priests, scribes, and elders, the main leaders in Jewish religious and civil affairs. And the trial the night before had been filled with deception. It had been filled with corruption as these Jewish leaders brought out lying witnesses in an attempt to declare Jesus guilty so that they could find a legal reason to execute him. But since Jesus was perfect and the Jewish leaders were not very organized, even their lying witnesses could not make a convincing case against Jesus. Only after Jesus openly claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God, did the council believe it had grounds to condemn him to death. Well, in the morning, these Jewish leaders had again come to take counsel against Jesus and to put him to death. Their sole purpose was to get Jesus executed. This second meeting of theirs was, was probably done to formally confirm the charges against Jesus and to uh, pronounce a, an official verdict. Also, judging from their actions in verse 2, these Jewish leaders probably discussed how they could bring about Jesus' legal murder through the Roman authorities. You see, according to John 18, the Jews had no legal right to do the death penalty. The Jews had their own leadership, but Israel was still a part of the Roman Empire, which means that the Jews had to submit to what Rome said, and Rome said that the Roman rulers were the only ones allowed to execute a person. So verse 2 says that the Jewish leaders bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. The Jews led Jesus to Pilate, for judgment, in the hopes that they could convince him to execute this man that they hated and opposed. They wanted Jesus dead so bad that they were willing to do whatever it took, even if that meant going to the Roman governor. They wanted to kill an innocent man. But not just any innocent man, but the prophesied Christ the Son of God. These Jewish leaders who, who should have been welcoming and rejoicing in their promised Messiah, who should have been worshiping and, and following the, the Savior and King, were instead trying all that they could to murder Him. Their sin was horrible. And their guilt was great as they were guilty of opposing and condemning God. But they were not the only guilty ones, as we see another terribly guilty soul in our next point. Guilt earned by Judas. Guilt earned by Judas. Matthew 27, verses 3 and 4 say, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. 
<clears throat> Judas's sin of betraying Jesus was so horrible that the author of Matthew mentions Judas's betrayal every single time that he talks about Judas. The most important part of Judas's identity was that he was the betrayer. The traitor Judas had been personally discipled by the Son of God for several years. He had heard Jesus' powerful teaching. He had seen Jesus' perfect life. He had experienced and been a witness to Jesus' amazing miracles. And yet, he had betrayed his master by leading Jesus' enemies to arrest his master. And now Judas was seeing the effect of his betrayal as he saw that Jesus was condemned. When Judas saw that the Sanhedrin had, had condemned Ju Jesus to death and were sending Jesus to Pilate to be executed, Judas began to have some second thoughts. He changed his mind. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas recognized his sin. He felt guilty about his actions as he returned the money the Jewish leaders had used to bribe him to betray Jesus. And Judas not only felt guilty, but he was guilty. As he accurately said, I have sinned, by betraying innocent blood. Jesus was innocent, but Judas was guilty. Judas had been disloyal and deceptive. Instead of being faithful, he had become a traitor. And Judas began to feel the full weight of that guilt. But he took that guilt to the wrong people. Judas had gone back to the very people who had paid him to do evil in the first place. That's like a thug in the 1920s Chicago going to his mob boss Al Capone and confessing his guilt. There's no point. The Jewish religious leaders were just as evil as Judas and would not give him any good counsel, any good comfort, any good guidance. Instead, their response was cold, was unloving, was unrepentant. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. These leaders had no sympathy for Judas. And in essence, they said, your guilt is not our problem. Fix it yourself. They showed no care. They denied all responsibility and they just wanted him to go away. Judas's guilt meant nothing to them. But it should have. Because if Judas was guilty, that would make them guilty as well. They felt nothing. But Judas was overwhelmed with guilt, and we see his response to his guilt in our next point. Guilt response by Judas. Guilt response by Judas. Matthew 27, <clears throat> verse 5. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went 
and hanged himself. <clears throat> Judas was incredibly guilty as he had committed great sin. Judas felt the horrid weight of that guilt and the spiritual leaders in Israel did nothing to help him with his guilt and so he got rid of the money that was associated with his evil deed, throwing the 30 pieces of silver into the temple. Judas knew he was morally responsible for betraying an innocent man, an innocent man had, who had shown him nothing but love, an innocent man who had given every indication that he was the promised Christ, the Son of God. And Judas was ashamed at his actions. But instead of, of humbly turning to Christ for forgiveness, Judas tried to deal with his guilt on his own. And because Judas was so completely overwhelmed and broken by his guilt, because he was filled with so much despair, the only way that he could deal with things was by killing himself. Judas's solution to his guilt was to put, put a noose around his neck and hang until dead. Having grief over sin is a good thing if it leads you to repent and to trust in Christ for forgiveness. But having sorrow over sin is worthless if it does not lead you to Christ. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Grief over your sin is shown to be Godly, if it leads to repentance, if it leads you to turn to Jesus for salvation. But if your grief does not lead you to the Savior and King, then it is worldly grief that only ends in death. Now as this verse is talking about spiritual salvation, the death here is primarily referring to spiritual death, not physical. When you don't take your guilt to Jesus, your grief will lead you straight towards eternal spiritual death in hell. But Judas's guilt was so immense that he ran towards eternal spiritual death by orchestrating his own physical death. Sorrow over sin leads straight to eternal spiritual suffering if you don't have the Savior. Judas did not take his guilt to Jesus, and his response was eternally fatal. The Jewish leaders did not respond the exact same way as Judas, but their response was equally destructive to their eternal fate. And we see that in our next point, guilt response by leaders, guilt response by leaders. Matthew 27, verses 6 through 10. <clears throat> but the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, 
It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. The chief priests, some of the most powerful and important religious leaders in Israel, were not in any way affected by Judas's remorse for his sins or his attempt at dealing with his guilt by returning his blood money. Judas's sins against Jesus were intricately connected to their own sins against Jesus as they had opposed and condemned Jesus to death. They were guilty of great sin, but unlike Judas, they did not feel the weight of their guilt. Instead, they just ignored it. After Judas had thrown the 30 pieces of silver into the temple, verse 6 says, But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. The silver was considered blood money because it had been used as a bribe to get Jesus arrested and condemned to death. And so because the silver was associated with betrayal and death, it was not lawful to put it into the temple treasury. The the silver was tainted by the evil that was connected with it. Now Deuteronomy 23 verse 18 does imply that money acquired in in a sinful manner could not be accepted at the temple. But think about the, the irony of this situation. The priests had used the silver to wickedly pay Judas to betray Jesus so that they could kill Jesus. And now they were unwilling to put that very money back into the temple treasury because it was associated with evil. So first off, by saying that the silver was blood money, that it was tainted by sin, they were admitting that they had sinned in bribing Judas to betray Jesus. Their own words revealed that they knew they had committed great evil. And second, their desire to follow a minor prohibition in Deuteronomy about not accepting certain types of money is absolutely insane as they had shown a willingness to violate every major command in the scripture as they had plotted against, slandered, arrested, condemned, and were bringing to execution the perfect son of God. This is like a truck driver who just went 100 miles per hour in a school zone, ran 10 red lights, smashed five cars, ran over three people, suddenly then deciding he needs to go to the DMV because his tags have expired. The priests had committed and were committing massive sins of epic proportions. And yet they were bound and determined not to break a small ceremonial law 
about money. They were so hardened in their sin and so committed to ignoring their guilt that they did not catch the massive irony in their actions. But they continued in their absurdly inconsistent and ironic obedience to the ceremonial law by not putting the money into the temple treasury. Instead, verse 7 says that they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. If an unknown person was, was traveling through Jerusalem and they died, there were not DNA tests back then to find out their identity, and not everybody carried ID with them. And even if they did have some identifying document on them, it could take weeks before the dead person's relatives were informed and were then able to travel their way to Jerusalem. So it was for the good of the community and was respectful to the dead to have some place to bury these strangers who suddenly died in Jerusalem. So to meet a public need, the priests bought a field that would be used for burying dead strangers. The field being called the potter's field. It meant that it had either been originally owned by a potter or it could have been a field that had been covered with clay that was dug up and used to make pots. And according to verse 8, that field became known as the field of blood as it was bought with blood money. And by doing this, the chief priests had unknowingly fulfilled the scriptures. Verses 9 and 10 say, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, at first glance, that quotation can seem a little odd. First off, because it's primarily from Zechariah. Not Jeremiah. Now, there are several passages in Jeremiah that mention a potter and a field that God commanded Jeremiah to buy. So this quotation in Matthew 27 could be a combined quotation from Jeremiah and Zechariah. And you see from Mark 1 that sometimes a biblical author will only list the most prominent prophet if he's quoting from multiple people. But the thing that is most odd about this scripture quotation from Zechariah 11 is that it was not originally a direct prediction about priests buying a field. And that can make us wonder, is the author of Matthew just making stuff up? Is he just randomly assigning meaning to different Old Testament scriptures and then linking them to stuff? Well, to give an answer to those questions we need to talk about the word fulfilled. Usually when we hear the Bible use this word, we automatically think it is talking about direct predictive prophecy. For example, we see this in in Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6. It quotes from Micah 5, 2 and says that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And where was Jesus Christ born? Bethlehem. Boom. Boom. Scripture was fulfilled. That is true. But the word fulfilled is referring to more than just direct predictions. The word fulfill refers to something that is being fully worked out. 
Something that is being brought to its fullest completion. I'll say that again. The word fulfill refers to something that is being fully worked out. Something that is being brought to its fullest completion. We see this kind of fulfillment when we look at the book of Hebrews. It talks about the Old Testament animal sacrifices and how the the sacrifices showed that sin deserved death and that God could only forgive people if, if somebody died in their place. This was good truth to know and it was easy to see in the Old Testament, but the New Testament showed us that the ultimate sacrifice for our sins was not animals, but was Jesus Christ. God Killing something in our place was fully fulfilled when Christ died on a cross for our sins. The animal sacrificial system did not directly predict the death of Christ. But Christ brought the sacrificial system to its fullest completion when he died. We see the truth of a substitute dying in someone's place fully worked out. When our Savior died on a cross. Or to give you a modern illustration of this, let's just say that I tell you that I'm a really big Star Wars fan. That I love all the Star Wars movies, books, comic books, and games. But let's say... You see me one day at one of those nerdy sci-fi conventions where you see that I I painted my whole body green to look like Yoda. I'm wearing a Jedi cloak, put on pointy ears, have have a lightsaber hooked onto my belt, and then you hear me say that I named my newborn baby Han Solo. Well, when I told you that I was a really big Star Wars fan... I did not directly predict that I was going to go to a a nerd convention dressed as Yoda or that I was going to name my firstborn son after a Star Wars character. But in doing all of that, I have brought my Star Wars nerdiness to its full completion. You can see my, my geekiness being fully worked out. I have now fulfilled the statement that I am a really big Star Wars fan. So, although Zechariah 11 is not a direct prediction about some future priests who would buy a field, it is accurate to say that it was fulfilled by those priests. And here's why I say that. In Zechariah 11, we see God putting Zechariah into the position of shepherd for the people of Israel. But the people of Israel rejected God's shepherd, and because of their rejection, Zechariah was going to stop being their shepherd and would instead turn them over to God's judgment. But before Zechariah left, he asked to be paid for his wages. The Israelites paid him 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave, and God mocked how little Israel valued his shepherd. Then the silver was thrown into the potter's house. Now, what the priests did in the New Testament fulfills what happened back there in Zechariah 11. It brings Zechariah 11 to its fullest completion. Because just like Zechariah was a spiritual shepherd of Israel, Jesus Christ was the ultimate shepherd of Israel. 
And just like the Israelites were guilty of rejecting Zechariah and considered him of little value, the priests of Jesus' day were also guilty of rejecting and devaluing Jesus. Just like the 30 pieces of silver were thrown into the potter's house, the priests took the 30 pieces of silver and bought a potter's field. And just like Israel faced judgment for their rejection of God's shepherd, Zechariah, Israel would now face judgment because of their rejection of God's shepherd, Jesus Christ. Jesus was the ultimate and the eternal shepherd. And eternal judgment would come on those who were guilty of rejecting and devaluing him. Therefore... Jesus Christ brought the symbolism and the message of Zechariah 11 to its fullest completion. It was most fully worked out in the events surrounding Jesus. This scripture was fulfilled. As we come to the end of our passage today, I want to close by looking at a few ways the truths of this passage should affect our view of Jesus. Number one, Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. Although the passage from Zechariah 11 was not a direct prediction that was fulfilled, Jesus did have several direct predictions that were fulfilled in this passage. First, in in Matthew 26, Jesus had prophesied that, that one of his 12 disciples would betray him, and he also said that it would have been better for that betrayer to have never been born, which shows that the betrayer would not repent of their sin and would face eternal judgments. And what do we see in Matthew 27? Judas, one of Jesus' twelve, had betrayed Jesus, and instead of repenting, he had been so consumed by his guilt that he killed himself. So, direct prediction fulfilled. Second, in Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, Jesus prophesied that he would be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And what do we see in Matthew 27? Jesus was condemned to die by the Jewish leaders and was delivered over to the Gentiles. Again, direct prediction fulfilled. So just as we saw Jesus in total control in Matthew 26, we continue to see Jesus' sovereignty in Matthew 27. Jesus was was not a helpless victim, but was Lord over all the events that were occurring. The Savior King rules over all, and nothing is outside His control. And that is someone that you and I can trust. Number two, Jesus is innocent. Jesus is innocent. Our passage from Matthew 27 about the extreme guilt of Judas and the, Jesus, and the Jewish leaders is contrasted with Jesus' innocence. 
We saw in in Matthew 26 that the worst enemies of Jesus could not prove Jesus was guilty of anything. His purity and his righteousness were obvious to everyone. And Judas made that clear in Matthew 27, 4, where he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Jesus was perfectly good and righteous, but his enemies were swimming in a sea of guilt. Our Savior King is not tainted by sin or evil, and he always does what is right. And that is someone that you and I can trust. And number three, Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Savior. We saw last week that Peter was very guilty as he sinned by denying Jesus Christ three times. Peter also recognized his sin and he was filled with sorrow over his guilt. But we know from Jesus' predictions and from the rest of Matthew that Peter repented. Peter was guilty. Peter had grief because of his guilt, but Peter brought his guilt to Jesus. Peter saw Jesus as the Savior, and he humbly came to that Savior for forgiveness. But our passage today shows people who did not do that. Judas recognized his guilt, was filled with grief over it, but instead of bringing that guilt to Jesus, he despaired and killed himself. And according to Matthew 26, Judas will spend eternity being punished in hell. The Jewish religious leaders were also guilty of great sin. But they felt no remorse. And instead of bringing their guilt to Jesus, they just completely ignored it. And according to Matthew 21, they will spend eternity being punished in hell. Peter was guilty. Judas was guilty. And the Jewish religious leaders were guilty. And the only reason Peter was not eternally condemned like them was the fact that he humbly brought his guilt to Jesus. And the only reason that Judas and the Jewish leaders ended up being eternally condemned was because they did not humbly bring their guilt to Jesus. Jesus made it clear that the way your sins could be forgiven, the way your guilt could be washed away, was by trusting in the Savior who died for our sins. In Matthew 26, Jesus taught his disciples about the symbolism of the Lord's Supper, about what it illustrated and pointed to. And when Jesus took the cup in verse 28, he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus 
excuse me, Peter rightly responded to his guilt by humbly trusting in the Savior Jesus who died so that his guilt could be forgiven. But Judas and the priests responded with despair or disinterest, and they did not come to the Savior. Every single person in this room is guilty. Because according to Romans 3.23, we have all sinned. None of us here are innocent. Which means that none of us can make it into God's perfect kingdom on our own. None of us deserves heaven. All of us start out as deserving one thing and one thing alone, and that is being eternally punished in hell. But the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the good news of Jesus is that there is a Savior who died to take away the guilt of every person who would come to him. There is hope for guilty sinners like you and me. But there is no hope if you don't take your guilt to Jesus. And this passage that we have been looking at today is a warning to us. And I would urge you to respond rightly to that warning by humbly trusting in our Savior Jesus Christ. Lord God, we do thank you for your Son. We thank you for what he accomplished in his perfect life, in his death for our sins, and in his resurrection from the dead. We thank you, God, that for all of us who have trusted in Jesus, our guilt, our shame has been nailed to the cross It has been borne by Jesus, and he has suffered for it. And because of that, we have been washed clean. And because of that, we can come into your presence. Because of that, we can have hope that we will spend eternity with you. We thank you so much for that, God. I ask God that as we... Think about this passage that we've just examined, that we would take it as the sober warning that it is, that there are those who have guilt who are unwilling to come to Jesus. I ask God that we would take that warning to heart, that when we feel the weight of our guilt, that we would not despair, but that we would look to the Savior who died. And I ask God that if anyone does not feel that weight of that guilt, that you would break them, that you would help them to recognize that they have violated your law, that they have disobeyed you and their guilt is great, but that they would also recognize that there is hope. And there is hope not because we're good enough, There's hope not because we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but there is hope 
because you killed your son on a cross, because you poured out your wrath on him so that those who trust in you could be forgiven, so that we could be washed clean, so that our guilt could be taken away. We thank you so much for that, Lord God. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.